Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th. This week on the podcast, I'm very excited to speak with maybe a girl who is running against Adam Schiff in CD30. This is a this is a historic race because if maybe wins the general election, she will be the first individual to uh, be a congressperson that's trans, which is a huge win, I think. So welcome to the podcast. I'm very excited to be speaking with you about your race and a few other things that are happening here in Los Angeles this week. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So let's first of all talk about uh, your race. The primary, you were right on Adam Schiff's tail in 2020. I believe that you were within 1% of actually uh, winning that. Like it was very close. It was shocking, I think, for a lot of people. So this is your second run. Um, do you think CD30 is ready for you? I absolutely do. I absolutely do. And, you know, just to clarify, so we, in 2020, we we lost the primary election by less than 1%. So we did not advance to the general election. Oh, right. Sorry. Good. Yeah. So it was, but it was still very, very close. And, you know, we were really proud of our first campaign being a, you know, brand new rookie campaign. Um, it's hard to break into these kinds of fields, especially when you're you know, challenging somebody who's been in office for 20 years. And, you know, I think a lot of people will give you these looks like you're like you're nuts for for wanting to even try it. Yeah. Um, but because we came so close to advancing to the general election last year, we said we have to do this again. You know, our community is counting on us, our activist circles. And so, yeah, we just had the primary election in June. You know, the election results have been taking longer in California just because, uh, they actually give you so many ways to vote, uh, which is a wonderful thing. So I think the, you know, the era of knowing results on election nights in California is kind of a bygone. Um, so we ended up not really knowing for sure if we had advanced until almost a month later when they finalized the results. Uh, at first, you know, right after election night, we were pretty, well, we started off actually in second place. And then after the second round of results came in on election night, we dropped into third place and then moved right back in the second during the next election results. And then we started to, you know, widen that margin between us and the third place party. And this race was, uh, it was a huge race. I mean, you know, California has 52 congressional districts and ours was the most crowded primary in the state of California. We had nine people running for, uh, for the seats and, you know, the top two move on. And it was remarkable because this is the first time that my particular district has ever had two Democrats that are going to be advancing to the general election. Right. Uh, you know, folks actually now have a, a choice between, you know, uh, a, an establishment incumbent who is moderate and centrist in many of his voting practices, or somebody who is a corporate free leftist grassroots candidates. And, you know, our district finally has a choice. You know, up until this point, uh, Schiff kind of was always able to coast after the primary election because it's up until this point, it was always him and a Republican in the general right. election. And in my district, we my district votes about 72 to 78 percent Democratic. So just based on those numbers, Schiff really didn't have to do any sort of campaigning in the general election cycle. And this is the first time that he actually has to worry about you know, losing his seat, which is a great thing either way, because even if we don't win the race in November, obviously that's the goal. You know, we're not running just to run, we're running because right. we know that we have a chance. But even if we don't win, we know that we're gonna be pushing him left on a lot of his policies. He started to talk about things that 
previously he didn't really mention. And um, I think even some portions of his voting record are starting to look a little bit more to the left. So I think ultimately this is a good thing. It's, it's a way to hold your Congress people accountable and say, you know, these are our demands. This is what we want to see. We don't want to just see, you know, just an everyday Democrat, especially in a place like Los Angeles, which, right. you know, is home to so many progressive people. Right. No, you're not wrong. You know, it's uh, so our, for folks outside of California, we do have a semi open primary, which means that it is very feasible to have two Democrats in a general election. We even see cases now where you have like a Democrat and a third party candidate, Green Party, perhaps mm -hmm. in general election. So I think having a semi open primary has really improved things um, for progressives in the state because it does give you those options. And they can't really say you're, you know, uh, what's the word they use that you're a, a spoiler candidate or something. Yeah, you, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, and so, yeah. And, and I actually, it's funny because I actually have had a number of people reach out to me post primary saying that, you know, they were, you know, told by a lot of Adam Schiff super fans, if you will, you yes. know, <laughs> vote for me because if they vote for me, then we're going to end up having a Republican, you know, in office, which again, just based on the numbers in my district currently would not happen. Yeah. Um, and so now that folks know, okay, you actually, there's no way that a Republican is going to end up in office in our district. You, it's definitely going to be a Democrat and you have a choice. Do you want the moderate establishments or the progressive, you know, corporate free candidates? So I think that's a great thing. It's a great great option to have choices. Oh, I agree. I, and I, and I think you're going to do well. I, I personally, I, you know, I see a shift in the way things are going in the city regardless. I mean, we have now in the district surrounding you, we had uh, Hugo Martinez that mm -hmm. uh, did better, you know, he was put up against Mitchell Farrell on the city council, yep. who is an establishment sort of centrist right-wing candidate. And then in the next district over, you had a self-proclaimed socialist, Eunice, um, squarely yeah. defeat Gil Cedillo. So mm -hmm. there's there's definitely a shift afoot, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, and also with, you know, Kenneth Mejia um, right. you know, coming in first for city controller. By um, a huge margin. By a huge margin, <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, there's definitely some big changes that are happening right now in Los Angeles, um, both on a local level, on a larger level. And you know, I think it's, you're seeing a lot of shifts in the way that people are thinking and the way that they're responding to their elected officials and what they're asking of their elected officials. Yeah, hundred percent. So let's talk about who you are running against for a moment. Adam Schiff, he's yeah. been in Congress a long time. He does sort of uh, fulfill that security state area as in inside the Democratic Party, right? So he's been part of the push against, you know, uh, Russia infiltration during the Hillary Clinton years, mm -hmm. received a lot of support from uh, the Clinton faction of the Democratic Party, let's call it that, for, uh, for that reason support. But I think that that's sort of evaporating right now. Uh, we obviously are seeing in the last week, Trump come under some serious fire here for his actions with classified documents and whatnot. But I think where you differ from Adam Schiff a lot of the times is that locally in the state of California, Adam has supported a lot of tough on crime sort of policies, yeah. including going after juveniles, uh, you know, locking yeah. up 14 year olds as adults. Uh, and I think that's kind of crazy. I don't see how you lock up a 14 year old as an adult when they have yet to have a uh, formed brain, let alone, uh, you know, opinions and abilities to really grasp what they're uh, doing in that capacity. So I think you're pushing for some reform in that area. So tell us a little bit about those policies and where you differ from Schiff in this area. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, uh, first of all, you bring up some really good points. So uh, 
Schiff has been in office now for, you know, going on 22 years. He's been in office since I was 14 years old. Wow. Um, yeah. And I think that he was relatively unknown outside of his district and outside of California up until around the time of the, um, you know, the onset of the Trump administration when he was working on the Mueller report and then later right. the impeachments and now the January 6th committee. And for that reason, I think a lot of people hail him as a national hero and they uh, believe that that makes him progressive. And, yeah. you know, while those are positions that I would certainly agree with in many regards, um, you know, that's that's not the whole picture of the candidate that you're looking at. You know, folks can be progressive in one realm and conservative in a different realm. And that's, you know, sort of the signature characteristic of somebody who is a moderate or a centrist. And these are things that the average voter doesn't really know about unless they're, you know, taking a deep dive into his voting record. And I've always said that this, you know, as a local politician myself, you're only as good as your voting record. You are your voting record. You know, you can say this, you can say that, but, you know, it comes down to the vote. You're an elected representative casting votes to represent the people in your district. And, you know, a lot of folks don't realize that he is very pro-cop, he's pro-ICE, he is pro-incarceration. And, you know, these are concepts that are not progressive. Um, you know, he's a warmonger and a lot of his fans don't want to don't want to see that. But it's absolutely true. You know, you had mentioned that he was in favor of, you know, legislation that would uh, you know, increase incarceration amongst people in California, particularly juveniles. Yeah. And, you know, this is something that he did when he was a California state senator in the late 1990s. He not only supported, but he actually authored the legislation that would increase incarceration uh, here in the state of California. And as an abolitionist, that's completely against my value system. And I think that a lot of people just don't don't realize that about him or wouldn't think that he's the kind of person that would do that but he did. And, right. you know, looking at, at war efforts, you know, he has voted for every single National Defense Authorization Act since he's been in office. You know, he's, he's voted for trillions and trillions of dollars for the Pentagon, you know, which ultimately results in war efforts and war crimes right. and, you know, the deaths of mostly black and brown people overseas. And you take a look at you know, who his incarceration bills are impacting most. And it's black and brown people here in California. And so for folks who are, you know, wanting to engage in anti-racism, you really have to think about this from a political perspective and what kind of impacts those those bills and those votes have on people. And it's it's a very negative thing for, you know, black and indigenous and people of color. So, um, you know, that's a big area where we differ. Um, yeah. you know, going on a little bit more about, you know, his war efforts, you know, he's voted for every single war effort since he's been in office. You know, he voted right. for the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq. He voted to support the Saudi invasion of Yemen, which is still one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world today. And, you know, Schiff has since reversed his opinion on supporting the Saudi invasion of Yemen, but that doesn't that doesn't change the hundreds of thousands of Yemenis who have died as a result of the United States support of Saudi Arabia's invasion and, you know, the funding of, right. you know, arms. No, you're not wrong on that. Um, and I think it is a big difference. I also think, you know, you're going to get pushback from people that don't understand, like when you say I'm an abolitionist, um, it's the same group that is, doesn't quite grasp the concept of defund uh, the police, mm -hmm. right? So what we're talking about here is, are, are, is the police department really well-equipped well equipped enough to deal with issues of like mental health crisis, 
homelessness, you know, the things that they're tasked with now across the board aren't things that they are equipped to deal with. And that money would be better spent if we gave it to, you know, trained professionals that are, right? So that's the that's what we're talking about here. Yep, and I also think with the juveniles, you know, the question is, is like, should a 14-year-old be punished for a crime? Well, of course, yes. And the answer to that is yes. We're not saying let them off scot-free. What we're questioning is whether or not given a life sentence to a 14-year-old makes sense. Is there other means of having... Um, punishment and rehabilitation at the same time. I mean, a 14 year old is not an adult and we should stop thinking that they are. So, so again, this is about really seeking what justice is, is justice always okay. being tough on crime. And I think the answer to that is no. Yeah. I think, you know, as you mentioned, you know, I, it seems as of late that, you know, the response to any sort of perceived increase in crime or homelessness or many different things, it seems like the answer is, okay, well, let's give the police more money. Let's give the police more money. Right. And it's, you know, these problems are not getting solved. They're getting worse. So they're getting worse. They're believe getting worse. that, you know, police are not the answer for everything. Right. And, you know, that goes on a national scale as well as a local scale. You know, right now here in Los Angeles, one of the big issues that is, you know, being talked about is uh, the implementation of LA Municipal Code 4118. 18. Yes. And <laughs> I've been involved with this particular issue for a few years now. Um, I don't know if I mentioned it already, but I am uh, an elected official in the Silver Lake Neighborhood Council here in Los Angeles. And so I am an elected official here, a very low level elected official. But, but an important one, I think. Exactly, because our neighborhoods are really our communities and our communities should have input into the way that their city is run. And with this particular ordinance, also known as the sit-lie-sleep law, it essentially makes it illegal to sit-lie or sleep within 500 feet of um, parks, schools, daycares, freeway overpasses, but on also ramps, on ramps yeah. loading docks, essentially you where you might see somebody experiencing homelessness, this law is kind of a catch-all for that. Right. And it also creates these special enforcement zones where, you know, it'll be a several block radius where you cannot be sitting, lying, or sleeping on the sidewalk or in any sort of public area. And, um, you know, it's just, in my opinion, it's it's cruel. It's unjust. In fact, I, I know for a fact that if the city had the option, they would they would ban encampments outright. Oh, uh, 100%. They, I agree. Yeah, the only reason they can't do that is because of the Boise versus, versus Martin right. uh, ruling, which basically said that it's unconstitutional for cities to ban homelessness encampments when there are not enough shelter beds to provide for them on the grounds of cruel and unusual punishments. So the city of Los Angeles is using this loophole by creating these special enforcement zones rather than a blanket, uh, you know, moratorium on homelessness. Right. And I think, you know, um, I'm glad you brought this up. It was actually on my list to talk with you about this. Uh, this past week, in fact, the uh, city council meeting was shut down by protesters that came mm -hmm. in there. And I was really disturbed by the way our city attorney was handling the situation and also Nuri Martinez, who is the president of the city council. She was very condescending to these individuals. But the reality is this, maybe. They aren't dealing with the root causes of why we're seeing so much homelessness. And, and basically, criminalizing poverty isn't going to fix the problem. We have a situation in LA where minimum wage is $15 an hour, but you cannot even pay rent on $15 an hour. It's just not possible. Do the math, right? So part and parcel to that is the amount of real estate developer funding that goes into our city council and the corruption that is attached to that. Jose Huizar is not the only individual that is engaged in this. 
it's uh, systemic in my opinion. So as long as the city council continues to criminalize poverty and not address the reasons we're in this place to begin with, the situation is not going to improve. And I think, um, you know, protesters and homeless individuals are just going to keep rising up against this. And I think what we saw last week is just a sign of more to come. Yeah. And you know what, if I could add to that. So I actually, sure. I, was, I was at that city council meeting. Okay, great. I'd love to hear your opinion on that. So I, sh I showed up um, early on for a press conference that was held by a couple of um, activist groups who oppose 4118, who want to see the abolition of 4118. Uh, and then everybody went inside for the public meeting itself. And, you know, the folks who attended this have been described as protesters. And I, I definitely think that that is, it's partially true, but okay. the fact is this is, you know, it's a, it's an open public meeting and these folks came to leave to make public comments opposing this, this okay. measure. Um, specifically, that's why I was there as well. I was there to, yes, protest 4118, but more so I wanted to leave my public comments to the city council before they made their final decision. Okay. Um, they probably only had about five or six speakers called before the meeting was shut down. Was shut down, right, yeah. So I had I had intended to make a, a public comment and what my public comment was going to regard was I wanted to remind the city council that, um, you know, that they are elected representatives supposed to be listening to their constituents, to the people that represent, that they, uh, you know, that elected them to represent them. And furthermore, you know, the neighborhood council system here in Los Angeles was created to act as uh, individual advisory boards to city council. So in LA, we have one mayor, we have only 15 city council members, 15 city council districts for a city of nearly 4 million people. And then we have 99 neighborhood councils. And again, the neighborhood councils are independent bodies under the jurisdiction of the city of Los Angeles who can, you know, take actions in their own neighborhood, but we're not a legislative body. Uh, but we can submit what's known as a community impact statement to uh, city council whenever they're voting on legislation. And the community impact statement can either be in support of the legislation or opposition of the legislation. Uh, my neighborhood council, the Silver Lake Neighborhood Council, we were one of the first neighborhood councils to submit a community impact statement in opposition to 4118 a few years ago. Um, since then, you know, I took a look at the council file um, the day that they were making this final vote and, you know, 20 neighborhood councils submitted community impact statements opposing 4118. Only wow. five neighborhood councils submitted community impact statements in support of 4118. So just even based off of that, yeah. you can see where the public sentiment is. We don't right. want to be criminalizing our neighbors who are experiencing homelessness. We want to help them. And That's I think right. that there's been a lot of this miscommunication that, oh, because we're you know fighting against this ordinance that we want people living on the streets. And that's absolutely false. We that's asinine, that, yeah. We believe that housing is a human right. And you know, but the thing is, the city is not providing adequate resources. So when when they do these traumatic sweeps and sweep away these encampments, I think for the average person who is housed, they don't realize the trauma that goes into that for that individual to lose all of the only belongings you have, all of your important documents, oftentimes your identifications, your um, medications that you need to take, and then you literally just have to start over at zero. And if you don't leave, then you are penalized with citation or arrest or thrown in jail, and again it, it just brings in more policing and this is not helping the situation what we need to be doing i've said this time and time again if there was one simple elevator pitch of how to, to alleviate homelessness it's to provide more permanent supportive housing and services yeah. 
That's the only way that we're going to be able to do this in a humane and just way. I agree with you. And we definitely need to do something about the income inequality in the city. Oh, you know, yeah. Part, part and parcel to this is Costa Hawkins. You know, this is a bill that was passed in you know the mid-1990s. So this is, you know, a long time ago. We're still feeling the repercussions of that. The mm -hmm. inability that the... Um, you know, local municipalities were given to regulate rent at that point, rent control laws, so to speak, has been devastating. And part of how they sold that bill, you know, I was in college when this bill was passed. And I remember them basically saying, listen, we have to do this because, because of all the rent control laws, the real estate developers, uh, you know, apartment building owners and whatnot, they're not maintaining the buildings and it's becoming problematic. So we'll grandfather all the current stock of, of rent control housing that we have those are grandfathered in, and this will only apply to new buildings, blah, 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 right? But the reality of what happened was, is a lot of these real estate developers came in and they bought these older buildings, tore them down and rebuilt new yep. ones. And that automatically got them out of the rent control laws. And they knew that they were going to do that going in, in my opinion. I don't think that, um, I mean, I hate to be cynical, but I don't think that they knew that that wasn't a possibility. And that's why they framed it that way. So Right now, it's really impossible for somebody that makes minimum wage or even under $20 an hour to find affordable housing, let alone pay for food. And then they wonder why people sort of, you know, end up in tents. Absolutely. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I even on my way to City Hall, I was talking with, um, I took a, um, a car and I was talking to my driver about, you know, he was asking me what I was up to. And I told him that I was going to, you know go protest the adoption of 4118 and he didn't quite understand what my position was and it so we started talking about you know homelessness in Los Angeles and you know he started saying you know some of the typical tropes that you hear like oh these people don't want to work and yeah, that's not true first of all, you can't make a sweeping generalization about 60,000 people right. um and the fact of the matter is a lot of people experiencing homelessness in Los Angeles actually are working. They do have jobs, but they cannot afford the extremely high cost of rent in this city. Right. Um, and what you were just talking about, you know, it also fits in with this idea of that we need a, an enforceable vacancy tax. You know, there are three empty units in Los Angeles for every every one person experiencing homelessness. Wow. Like it, in in the I just don't see that as a just society. Yeah, I agree with you. Vacancy tax worked very well in uh, Vancouver. It's something I think we should definitely look at. Um, I want to shift gears for a second and talk about trans rights. Um, obviously, you're a non-binary, non couldn't get that out. You're a non-binary trans individual. So you are on the forefront of having to deal with what's going on currently. Um, right now, we have a lot of right-wing extremism that is coming out of the woodwork against trans rights across the country, not just here in California, everywhere. We've seen, you know, drag shows and drag queen story hours being protested by, you know, Proud Boys, Patriot Front, mm -hmm. um, you know, neo-Nazis, White Lives Matter had one with uh, up in uh, Northern California that some Proud Boys even showed up with, uh, uh, showed up to as well. So it was a joint sort of a thing. But point being is there's a lot of right-wing extremism that is just percolating to the surface in regards to trans rights. And I don't see it stopping anytime soon. Um, part and parcel to that, I think, is in this post-Roe world that we're in, where you know, we've gotten rid of Roe v. Wade, and now you know, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito have made it clear that they think um, coming for gay marriage is perfectly acceptable as well. Yeah. So there's an erosion of those rights as well. So um, in your mind, how should we address this as a society and if you were going to give advice to, you know, other trans individuals and their allies uh, about how to handle these things, what, what would that be? 
Yeah, um, you know, you're you're absolutely right. And to me, it's actually pretty remarkable how recently this conversation, how this conversation has blown up about trans rights and even on a different level drag shows, because yeah. uh, we actually didn't even see it this badly when Trump was in office. Um, you know, this has kind of all popped up fairly recently. I mean, of course, there has been you know, hate um, and discrimination against trans people for a long time. But seeing the kind of, uh, you know, political conversations that we're having about it right now, uh, it really breaks my heart that trans people are not involved in these conversations. And, yeah. you know, the, you can see there's a direct correlation between, um, you know, the Supreme Court um, and the things that they're talking about and the ideas that are coming out of, you know, so many different state legislatures coming out of so many different states on a governor level, you know, Ron DeSantis, Greg Abbott have made it perfectly clear that trans people are not welcome. And um, it breaks my heart because there are no trans people involved in these conversations. And, you know, that's definitely a, a part of why I felt that I needed to run because there's never been a trans person federally elected to our government. And how can we expect that trans people are, are being fairly represented when there are no representatives who, who have that experience, that lived experience of what it's like to be trans and what it's like to go through your day-to-day -day, um, life as a trans person, the kinds of interactions that you have and whether or not you're accepted or rejected. Right. And, you know, it, it's, it's really bad. I don't think people realize how many anti-LGBTQIA bills have moved through various state legislatures this year. In 2021, I think there was about 191 anti-queer bills that moved through states. We're only a little more than halfway through 2022, and there's been, I think, around 300 this year. Wow. And about half of those are specifically targeting trans people and whether or not a trans person should be able to use the bathroom or the locker room or play sports. You know, we're not asking for special rights here. We're asking to be, you know, fully integrated into society and accepted for who we are. And, you know, we just want to use the bathroom, play sports, yeah. use a locker room. You know, we're not asking for a lot here. And um, so in terms of what people can do, I think, you know, first of all, support, um, you know, local trans mutual aid efforts. Uh, trans people are scared right now, and especially trans people living in, in red states, in some of these states that have already enacted anti-queer legislation. Um, I actually had a trans woman reach out to me last week. She lives in Texas, and, you know, she wanted to thank me for, you know, for running on a platform that includes, you know, trans rights and trans right. acceptance. And she said that, you know, a lot of people just don't have the option of up and moving to a safe state per se. That's right. That's right. Up where they're at, they don't have the resources to move. So now they're stuck in a place where, you know, they were probably in danger before, but now they're even in even more danger and not protected by the states, nor are they given any sort of tools to, you know, to to exist they're not being able to receive gender affirming health care and you know gender affirming health care is so important to trans people it can be the matter of life and death right and um you know i think maybe you saw just uh the other day you know Ron DeSantis said that medicaid cannot be used for gender affirming services yeah. and it's it's just despicable it's like why like why i feel like trans and queer people are, are being used as pawns right now in this bigger political realm and and it's just not fair to us. No, it's not fair. And you're not wrong on that. Part and parcel to this conversation, I think, is a conversation that needs to be had about Christian fascism, because a lot of these opinions are absolutely grounded in hyper-religious beliefs, right? So Absolutely. the right-wing extremists 
have very, def, definitely globbed onto like hyper-Christian um, beliefs. Even the neo-Nazis, like if you go into the neo-Nazi chat rooms, they're all very religious. I know that might sound um, incredibly counterintuitive to a lot of folks, but, yeah, but, this, but it is the case, right? And so this is why when you see this language about, you know, pr uh, pedophile or groomer, oh, what God, they're really... Yeah. Yeah, what they're really saying there is very anti-homophobic, anti-trans, right? This is this is like a dog whistle that they're using to identify these groups as being um, less than or othered, you know. So, you know, and I, I've seen some of these proud boys out there saying saying this stuff. Um, you know, another character that's coming up through the ranks on this is Sean Foyt, who has you know come into play, I'd say the last year and a half. So again, like you're mentioning that this is a po post-Trump world, and you're correct. I think it's gotten worse. Post-Trump, I think a lot of people thought that when he left office, we would see this kind of tamp down a little bit, but it's mm -hmm. actually increased across the board. Yeah. Um, so, and I think part of that is 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 the road decision has enabled that Christian fascist viewpoint. So now they feel like they can be comfortable with, you know, making anti-homophobic statements and whatnot. That feels like, okay, we're allowed to do that again. That's no longer an issue yeah. of political yeah. correctness. Hello. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> It, uh, and it's it's scary. It is scary. I, I, I Not a day has gone by in this past year where I haven't found something just hideous and ugly on, you know, Twitter, yeah. in the media, you know, pertaining to, to queer people, whether that be, you know, somebody who's trans or somebody who is a drag performer. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, this uh, conflation of, you know, of queer people and pedophilia, it's completely unfounded. Yeah, it's, uh, completely. it's completely unfounded. And, you know, saying that parents who support their trans kids are, are grooming them. No, oh, the parents, you know, I think we underestimate how much kids know about themselves and know about their identity. And you can't just thrust an identity on somebody. You can't just, no. you know, thrust a gender identity or a sexual orientation on somebody. Case in point, I grew up going to Catholic school. Um, I come from a mixed Jewish and Catholic background. I went to Catholic school. Interesting. There where it was very not okay to be to be queer. I had to stay in the closet for many years. I didn't, I, I was raised in such a, a hostile environment towards queer people from a religious point of view that I didn't want to be queer when I was younger. I thought there right. was something wrong with it. I thought there was something right. wrong with me. If I could have done anything in my power to try to be straight or cisgender, I would have done that because of that <laughs> environment. Yeah. But it didn't work. And it just right. proves this point of the innateness of. Oh, it's entirely you know. innate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we can have that conversation too. Like these folks want to say that science supports their viewpoint, that sexuality, biological sexuality is binary, but that's simply not the case. And uh, like not. everything in biology, it occurs on a scale, right? There's yeah. one side, here's the male. The other side is the female. There's variation that occurs in between those two things. And in fact, there's a uh, scientist at UCLA, his name is Dean Hamer, who has done research in this area that I think is pretty compelling about how a brain can be sexed um, in vitro and also at puberty with the quote unquote opposite hormone and a whole host of other things that happen and occur biologically, right? These are not necessarily abnormal. They are not necessarily, uh, you know, people want to say that it's uh, something that needs to be corrected, right? This is not the case. This mm -hmm. is just what I would call the spread of excellence, right? The spread yeah. of excellence means that people can be different and equal, and there's nothing wrong with any of that. And we should just celebrate the variation that naturally occurs in humanity. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know why that's such a crazy statement. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it just, you know, it speaks to these greater 
issues of, you know, patriarchy and, and right, power and right. control. And, but you're right, you know, very few things are actually a binary. Most things are a spectrum. And exactly. it doesn't make anything on that spectrum right or wrong. You know, I, I see so many people being, you know, saying things like, you know, their only comment is there's only two genders, there's only two right. sexes. And it's Which like, is not true. literally yeah. not true. That's literally not true. But and they say it's biology. I'm like, it's not. If you actually understood biology, you would realize how ridiculous you sound at this point. But, you know, a lot of the same arguments are made uh, when it comes to race and IQ, right? That yeah. IQ is innately tied to some phenotype, which is just an they, absurd yeah. statement. Ah, frustrating stuff we're dealing very, with. Very. Um, I want to actually ask you about Ukraine and Russia, because I think you have a very well thought out, nuanced um, understanding of the situation, right? A lot of people are just chumming on to one side or the other. And it's, it's obviously more complex than that. You know, you have an eight year, eight year long civil war that's been going on there. You have a lot of, uh, you know, Russian separatists inside Ukraine that want to be part of, like, it's just complex. But basically, you're coming out and saying that, um, you know, Putin's invasion is wrong, but we should also support the fallout of that, you know, the victims in Ukraine that are suffering, you know, from from the war, they need mutual aid. And also that we should probably not intervene in the situation because it will probably make matters worse. At least this is my understanding of your policy. Okay. Yeah, those are my thoughts on on that. It's you know, as you mentioned, it's incredibly complex and nuanced. It's not a again, it's not a binary. Do you support or not support? It's you know, for me, I I describe my my platform in general as a an intersectional humanitarian platform, and I am anti-war. Um, do I recognize that we live in a world of war? Yes, absolutely. But I want to do everything in my power to alleviate that, not escalate that. And, you know, we're absolutely on the verge of a proxy war with Russia over the Ukraine issue. And I um, I think that we do need to be supporting the people of Ukraine. And I think that needs to be in the form of mutual aid. That needs to be, you know, granting mass refugee status. That means, right. you know, providing shelter and food and water and medical aid. I don't think that means we need to be, you know, sending in more and more arms. Um, because that's going to, the only thing that's going to do is frustrate Russia even more against the United States and escalate international tensions. And um, so, yeah, I do think we need to be supporting the people of Ukraine, but I don't think that we need to get militarily involved. I can't remember the last time the U.S. got involved in any sort of military action, and we had a happily, living happily after ending. (laughs) Yes, not for a long time. I'd say World War II. You know, and, and I think obviously the, the conversation about Nazis in Ukraine is a valid one. Um, anybody that's been paid attention to Ukraine the last you know, decade knows that they absolutely do have Nazis there. Um, that's, that's not hyperbole. But guess what? There's Nazis everywhere in the world, including Russia. Yeah. Um, ironically, one of the biggest Russian Nazis, his name is White Rex, um, moved to Kiev and is now there basically saying all the Russian Nazis should come to Kiev because- that's where their battleground is for white nationalism, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, but on that note, we've also had, you know, uh, California Nazis, um, specifically Ram based out of Huntington Beach, uh, California, go there and fight. So this is, it's, it's, again, it's a complex situation. I don't think you can say we should not help the Ukrainian people that are suffering from this war because of the, you know, 10% that are Nazis there, right? That's just- Absolutely, yeah. That's just doesn't seem like a- a fair way to frame it. Um, So I also want to talk to you about other different um, ideas you have that mark uh, your departure from Shift's platform, meaning like these are the things that separate me from Adam. This is why I'm better. Um, What are some of those things that we haven't touched on yet? 
I think a big part of it is um, is funding and um, corporate interests. Ah, okay. And <clears throat> I think when it comes to politics, a big thing you can always do is a big and easy thing you can always do is is follow the money and and then politicians voting records make a, a whole lot more sense. Um, you know, I've pledged since the beginning of my first campaign to not take any sort of corporate interest money. And that's because I'm running on, as I mentioned, an intersectional humanitarian platform that includes a lot of big policies for all, you know, universal health care for all, housing for all, education for all. And <clears throat> um, and in addition to, as I mentioned earlier, you know, my anti-war positions, you know, uh, I'm for the abolition of ICE. These are all things that Schiff does not agree with. The one right. time I actually was able to speak with Schiff um, personally was at a Silver Lake Neighborhood Council meeting a couple of years ago. And the question that I asked him was, do you support the movement to abolish ICE? Which I think is particularly important in my community where uh, ICE impacts a lot of the, the families living in my, in my community, in my district. And, you know, he sort of ran all around the question for a few minutes until eventually coming yeah. to the conclusion, no, he does not support the abolition of ICE. Um, but anyways, I'm digressing a little bit back to- No, that's know, important information, I think. Yeah, but with like corporate interest money, you know, Schiff, okay, so for instance, I had an article come out in NBC last week, and the article frustrated me a little bit because I talked to the reporter for about 40 minutes about policy issues, and in the whole article, I got one line of mention about my policies. Oh, Schiff's boy. office actually responded to their comments or their request for comments and went in to say, you know, Schiff um, supports Medicare for all and the Green New Deal and all of these other. Does he though? I mean, technically on paper, yes, he is a co-sponsor of Medicare for all. Okay. But, you know, I just, I can't trust a politician who says that they are for universal health care, but they accept money from big hospitals and pharmaceuticals right, and, right. Own, and own stocks in, in pharmaceuticals. It just, it goes against their own interests when they get involved in that way. You know, I can't trust somebody who says they're for the Green New Deal, but without, uh, without um, you know, without missing a beat, every single year they vote for almost a trillion dollars for the largest institutional polluter on our planet, the U.S. military. Yeah. And I can't trust that somebody wants to see housing for all when they are, you know, funded by real estate. And, you know, so there's these fundamental discrepancies between what he's saying that he supports, but who he's being funded by. Right. And it also pertains to, you know, his, um, you know, his warmongering efforts. You know, I mentioned earlier that he's voted for every single war effort since he's been in office, which makes sense when you take a look at who his donors are. He takes, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars from the American military industrial complex, from Raytheon, from Northrop Grumman, um, Lockheed Martin. And so they're funding that explains campaign. a lot of his positions, actually. Exactly. So they're funding his campaign yeah. every year. He votes for the National Defense Authorization Act, which a huge amount of that money goes back to those defense contractors. They then fund his campaign again. And it's just this endless cycle. And it's very easy to not see that um, if you're not, you know, really diving into somebody's record and into somebody's, you know, fundraising records. So, like I said, follow the money. Um, it's really hard to trust any politician that is corporately funded that they're not going to be 
you know, putting their loyalty towards corporate interests rather than the interests of the people that elected them. It, that's exactly the case, you know, and part and parcel to that conversation is the very clear history we also have of uh, members of the Democratic Party saying they support certain positions, right? You mm -hmm. mentioned Medicare for all, Green New Deal, right? So on paper, they support them, but then they won't bring the vote to the, uh, the bill to the floor for a vote like we saw recently in the California state legislation. Uh, so oh. you Right. So what difference does it make if they say they support such a thing on paper, but when when you know you have to put the pedal to the metal, they're not there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi wanted Medicare for all in the early 1990s. In 1994, she wanted Medicare for all to hit the floor. She's now the Speaker of the House and refused to allow Medicare to hit the floor. That's Medicare right. for all. And, um, you know, you have to, it makes you wonder what, you know, why, why? And then you take a look at, you know, who is fundraising for them and it suddenly makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Nancy's in that position because she is a good fundraiser. That is why yeah. she is Speaker of the House. She has, you know, in fact, we're coming up on her annual Napa Valley fundraiser weekend that she does every year. So this is the who's who of large Democratic Party uh, donors that come to Napa to her estate there. And they spend the weekend there and they have, you know, various um, events planned, whatnot. But these are very wealthy donors that are funding you know, a lot of the gifts to the Democratic Party. And it's 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 sort of we're at a place now where they are trying to serve two masters at the same time that that it's not possible to do, right? So either you are going to govern for the working class that you say you support with progressive policy like Medicare for all, uh, you know, and deal with income inequality and whatnot, or, or you're gonna continue to give more parts of our government to the wealthy elites, to the platonomy. Yeah. You can't have it both ways. Absolutely, absolutely. It even, you know, goes into the, you know, Inflation Reduction Act that was just passed. And yeah, yeah. everyone's hailing, that, hailing it as this, you know, miraculous bill. I mean, it's a reconciliation bill. So, of course, there's going to be the good, the bad, and the ugly in it. Right. But, you know, people are saying, you know, this is the, you know, the greatest thing that we've done for, you know, to try to uh, address climate change and the greatest thing that we're doing to try to provide more Americans with access to health care. Access is one of those words that I hate. Yeah. <laughs> We have access. We have access. I could. I have access to buy it. a Lamborghini, but Lamborghini, but I can't afford it. Exactly, <laughs> huge difference right there. And yeah, I, you know, I was, you know, reading through the the bill itself, which you know, it's so convoluted. It's like seven hundred and thirty pages. Yeah. And you know, the climate stuff. There is a lot of good stuff in there related to climate endeavors. But then you scroll to the very end and you start to see all of this information about, you know, increasing, you know, auctions for um, offshore and, um, you know, land drilling and, you know, fossil, yeah, fuel. fossil fuel companies had a say in it. There's a reason they're okay with it. Um, you know, I would actually be okay if some of these folks came out and basically said, hey, it's not the greatest bill. We obviously need to do more. We're having a hard time here. We passed this in the interim, and we're going to keep working to change this. But instead, they come out and they oversell this as like the greatest thing since, Absolutely. you know, the refrigeration was invented. And it sounds ridiculous to me. Also, I'm really bothered by the way in which they attacked Bernie Sanders for trying to add some amendments that made sense. They, these were good amendments that any yeah. uh, Democratic Party congressperson should support. And they had more harsh words for Bernie Sanders, who was going to vote yes anyway. They had harsher words for him than they did Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin, and yeah. How does this make sense? It, I mean, it's it's truly remarkable that, you know, so many folks in the Democratic Establishment Party are 
willing to bend, you know, head over heels for Joe Manchin, but not for Bernie Sanders, who is arguably one of the most progressive, you know, folks in, um, you know, in the Senate and all of Congress right now. And, you know, earlier you said, well, you know, uh, you would have liked to have seen folks saying, okay, this is a good start, but we need to do a lot more. Right. It, it makes, it actually makes so much sense why, you know, the establishment democratic party is not saying that is because we are less than three months away from the midterm elections. And, right. you know, we're suddenly seeing all of this stuff happening. We're suddenly starting to see action and they're billing it as the best actions in the world. <laughs> And it's because they want to maintain, you know, control of, of the house and, and not lose, you know, the Senate. And right. so it makes sense to me, but it's, <laughs> this I don't is think, you know, maybe my thing is, this is I don't think they hear how that sounds. I want them to obviously stay in control of the yeah, Senate same, and the house. Same. Obviously I don't need to see more Trump people like, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world need to disappear. But at the same time, um, I think what they do is very cynical for a lot of voters, right? Because they no longer trust the Democratic Party. These are not right-wing voters. These are left-wing voters, and they are tired of hearing the Democratic Party over-promise and under-deliver and then pretend like there's nothing wrong. So they're becoming more and more cynical and nihilist, and I think this is a really big problem right now. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it also speaks to, you know, this idea of the duopoly, you know, yeah. we exist in a duopoly, but it's still also not a binary. And, um, right, right. You know, I think we're seeing just uh, the divisions between the two parties get so extreme. And it's just, you know, this finger pointing and blaming on either side that nothing is getting done. And, um, you know, it's interesting it just to kind of pull this back to my campaign and to Schiff. Uh, one of the things that has really bothered me uh, ever since winning the primary election is Schiff has done uh, an enormous amount of fundraising via, mm -hmm. you know, emails and texts and all these different campaigns. And what bothers me to no end is how he's being dishonest in the portrayal of his own election. And yeah. he's putting out these fundraising emails saying, hey, I really need your help. You know, Republicans and the you know GOP MAGA, they want me out of office. Um, I need your help to stay in. When right. <laughs> he's not revealing that he's not running against anybody right. in the GOP. There's yeah, no chance of that happening. He's running against somebody to the left of him. That's right. That's and right. he's terrified to, you know, he can't fundraise. He's off terrified that. to admit that. And, you know, and if he sends these emails out of state, which I know he does, right? These guys are all fundraising out of state, exactly. out of district. So somebody in a, in a state that doesn't have a semi-open primary and doesn't know anything about California politics or who he's running against is going to be like, oh, yeah, it's going to be some MAGA guy in office if we don't get Adam elected. So exactly. so they're, it's, they're playing a game here. In many ways, it backfires, though, because the folks that they really need to hold on to in the party, the, the votes that they need to win elections, they continue to, um, instead of like uh, having some sort of healing message or reaching out to them and, and offering you know, some, some sort of olive branch, they keep doing this stuff. And it's just so unbelievably tone deaf. Yeah. Very, very, very. I mean, honestly, in my opinion, the only reason Biden won this election, it, it it's really not a mandate for him. It's a mandate against Trump. Exactly. Yeah. And I think there's a difference there that needs to be had. What happens, um, what happens when they don't have the window of their back anymore? Well, you know, we lose. And here's the, here's the wild thing to think about. The Democratic Party, if they stopped doing this and really did continue to make appeals to the working class only and, and govern for the working class, they would end up being perpetually in power. And I don't know why they don't see this. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Because there are, you know, to, to, it's it would be false to say that you know the democratic party and the republican party and more so the people that they represent are you know diabolically against each other they are that they're on opposite ends on everything when you know things like universal health care that's something that is is bipartisan that crosses party lines that's right that's right so many people who are working class who identify as conservative who need health care and who would support you know universal health care right. and of course, we always end up with, you know, those the naysayers who, you know, perpetually are asking, well, how are we going to pay for this? How are we going to pay for this? Yet, not once do we ever hear that kind of conversation when we are funding a nearly trillion dollar defense yeah. budget. <laughs> exactly. It's ridiculous. And all of this has to do with where the money is, right? So they're getting, our Congress is owned by, you know, the military industrial complex, even Eisenhower, this was a Republican president warned about this eventually happening. If yeah. we didn't do anything to nip it in the bud, he was, he was right. And at the same time, there's the conversation of the fact that if we paid in taxes for the premiums that would, um, you know, for, for universal health care, what we pay now in premiums, co-pays and the like is actually more money. Uh, you know, Medicare for all is economically more efficient. That's just not a controversial statement. Even the Koch brothers uh, who backed a study had to come out and say that this was the case. So, yeah. so it's just, it's just our Congress folks eating at the trough of, of uh, corporate America and nothing more. Um, and it's unfortunate that that's where we're at. I do think things are changing though. I do think folks like you that are coming and running for office and, and winning your elections, you're coming in with a fresh eye and you're seeing it and talking about it for what it is. And most people are going to respond to that. I mean, here's the other thing I often say, we also have this, you know, we talked about it a, a little while ago, this increase in fascism that we're seeing, you know, the, mm -hmm. the anti-trans folks and the right-wing extremists, all of that's part and parcel to that conversation. Part of the reason that those folks are gaining in steam is because the left, meaning the Democratic Party, the left hasn't provided a left exit to the income inequality that we are experiencing in the country. And because of that, the right wing is doing that. It might be uh, you know, bad faith, and I think it is bad faith because I think they are pigging out at the trough of corporate America even more, mm -hmm. but they're at least trying to address it to voters, right? They're not pretending it's not an issue. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So. So that's where those votes are going at this point. And people are becoming more radicalized as they, you know, get into their Facebook chats. Then that's not, you know, crazy enough. They go to, you know, 4chan, then they go to 8chan, then they're on Telegram and Gab. So, you know, there's this, this, there's a reason this is happening, in my opinion. And the Democratic Party, if they want to like put the, put the brakes on that, they need to address what is happening income-wise in the country. Stop bragging about adding all of these jobs that don't pay enough money for people to get by on. Because I don't care if you're adding 500,000 jobs, if those jobs don't pay somebody enough uh, to, you know, maintain any sort of normal lifestyle with rent, food, and maybe, gosh, imagine yep. this, some dinners out every now and then. Imagine that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So this is where we're at. Um, what, so anything we haven't discussed yet that, that you think is important, I want to give you a moment to do that. Yeah, I think, you know, I... I guess I just wanted to add one other thing that I think is a really important distinction between myself and Schiff is, okay. you know, Schiff is, um, he's very hyper-focused on a national level. And I fully understand that when you are an elected representative for either the House or the Senate, you know, you are representing your community, you know, 
in Washington, but there still needs to be a community factor. You need to still be representing those people that are in your district and have an idea of what it's like to live in your district, first of all, um, to struggle in your district. You know, I am a renter. I don't have health insurance. Right. Um, I know what it's like to worry about being evicted. And for somebody who's been in office for 20 plus years, who's a multimillionaire, you start to lose touch with the very people that you were supposed to be helping and representing when you were in office. Um, and that again goes, you know, for people experiencing homelessness, you know, if uh, homelessness has increased um, by a double digit, double digit yeah. percentage every single year for the past at least five years. Wow. And that is showing that life is getting harder for people in my district. Yeah. And so you have to ask when your highest representative representing your district, if things are getting worse over the period of 20 years, perhaps it is time for, for new leadership, for yeah. you know, some fresh blood in, in our government. Yeah, it's like economic hunger games out there and the Democratic Party refuses to see it. Yeah. <laughs> That's sort of where we're at. Maybe if people want to donate to your campaign after hearing this, they want to support you, where's the best place for them to do that? The best place they can do that is right through my website, which is maybeagirlforcongress.org. Um, and you can make a donation on the website. You can also find out more information about my uh, issues and my, my policy positions. And we also need, we need volunteers. You know, we are a small grassroots corporate free campaign. We've got about 70 or so volunteers helping us out and we need every single person to help us. Um, I know that folks are struggling right now. So if you can't afford to make a donation, um, you know, help us write some postcards, help us make some phone calls, help us knock on some doors. And, you know, I'm confident that that's why we even won the primary in the first place is because we we led a very strong round game. We reached almost 20,000 doors on a with a core team of only about five people. You know, we have over 70 volunteers, but, you know, they might have helped us once or twice. We have a very small team and we need all the help we can get. I think one of the other remarkable things about us advancing through the primary is just the uh, the gap in um, the difference between how much my campaign raised versus Adam Schiff. Schiff's campaign raised over $15 million. Wow. Just in this election cycle alone. That's and wow. we ended up getting the second place spot on a budget of only $22,000. That's impressive. We were out really 110 to one. Right, right. So imagine so, what we could do if we had, if we were able to raise $100,000, we could actually win this campaign. I'm, I'm confident that if, if people in my district know about our campaign and know about the positions and policies and the, the changes that we want to see, I, I'm confident that they'll vote for us. But we got to get the word out and we definitely need all the help we can get. 100%. Let me ask you one last question. Has the DCCC or the California Democratic Party put their thumb on the scale in any way during this? Uh, you know, yes and no. Um, Schiff definitely has the endorsement of a number of, you know, the establishment, um, you know, various Democratic um you know, organizations that are throughout the state. I will say there are some that, you know, elected not to endorse either candidate, which I think shows that they want to endorse me. Um, yeah. I feel like yeah. they can't go against Adam Schiff. Um, so yeah, so a lot of our endorsements have come from, you know, local mutual aid efforts like Brown Game LA. Right, right. Um, you know, Marianne Williamson is endorsing us and, you know, a lot of other progressive um, activists and challengers who are running just not only here in California, but across the US. So we have a lot of progressive supports. And again, if, if a progressive can win anywhere, 
uh, it's definitely got to be at least Los Angeles. Oh, I agree. I agree. Thanks for joining me, maybe. I think this was really an informative conversation. Um, and I look forward to hearing hearing more about what happens with your campaign in the next couple of weeks. Yes. Thank you so much, Tina. I really enjoyed getting to chat with you. This was a really wonderful convo. So I appreciate you.